that has a particular, uh, I think, importance theologically, but certainly particular importance to me. Uh, Y'all know that I do have a kind of scientific bent. That's how my brain is actually built. My SAT score on the math and science stuff is way higher than my English stuff. I don't read and write so good. Um, But I love science. And uh, so I have a a strong passion for this. So I want to kind of give you some resources also so that it's in your brain so that you know. Uh, First resource, there's a really good commentary uh, on the book of Genesis written by the guy right back there um, that's written very much so that anybody in here could read it and enjoy it. If you ever want to read Genesis and get a more kind of full picture than certainly what I'm going to give you in preaching, I'd recommend Dick's commentary very much so. Um, I'm using it as I prepare. It's very good. It's very good. Um, He's going to deal with the issues uh, in the book, but not be, you know, it's not in Hebrew and doesn't translate it for you. Like, it's very helpful, and I would highly recommend that. Um, A second book that I would recommend uh, is Creation and Change by Doug Kelly. Uh, Doug Kelly, Dr. Kelly, is up at RTS. He's the systematic theology professor. Um, He's a little bit smart. Uh, But he took Genesis uh, 1 and 2 and exegetes it theologically and then applies science to his theology. And it's very, very fun. I mean, he does chapter, I mean, just chapter 1, verse 2 is really, I think, the first that much of the book, just verse 2. But he does, like, the science behind it, looking at, you know, the possibility of Earth being created on the event horizon of a black hole uh, and how that would change the science and the the passage of light and the speed of light changing speeds or the possibility of being created on the brink of a white hole instead of a black hole and how that would change and explain some of the science. Uh, For those that have a scientific mind, I would highly recommend this. This is not easy reading, um, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Last night, I read almost all of it because I got interested and I couldn't stop. If that puts it in perspective, I've read it four times and I couldn't put it down again. Um, uh, I just got so enthralled. I could not stop. It's so good. Third resource is Answers in Genesis. They have a website in which obviously they're trying to present answers to uh, the secular scientists in the secular world. And Answers in Genesis is written, uh, their material is written specifically from a literal understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. The view that Dick and I both hold. Highly encourage you uh, to use that as a resource. Uh, And then the last one is the Institute on Creation Research. Now the Institute on Creation Research publishes all kinds of materials. They have top-tier academic resources by the guy who founded it, a guy named Henry Morris, who's a doctor and brilliant. Uh, And he founded the Institute for Creation Research to basically take a biblical theological perspective and begin to understand science and then have those resources available for Christians. Uh, These two books, you know, like I said, they're great. This one is the one that I want to highlight real quickly. Many of you will remember when I came back from General Assembly last year, and I told you I went to a seminar on um, how astronomy proclaims the glory of God and how it fits Genesis 1 and 2 by a young doctor named Jason Lyle. This is his book. He just turned that seminar into a DVD. He's a young, brilliant scientist who's approaching his scientific endeavor from the perspective of Genesis 1 and 2, which if you know anything, astronomy, maybe more than any other field aside from evolutionary biology, assumes that God does not exist. And so this young man is totally a pariah in his field and shunned and rejected, um, but a tremendous resource. And like I said, they just released the DVD, I think this month, of the seminar that I went to in General Assembly. 
that's the Institute for Creation Research, and I can show you uh, that DVD, particularly for those of us that interact with younger people. This is an important topic for us to understand. We're going to get to that in the sermon, though. All right, Genesis 1 to the text. There was your shameless uh, disclaimer, shameless promotions and plugs, resources that you should have and make use of. Now to the best of all resources. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening. And there was morning. The second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Our Father and our God, we know that your word is good, for you are good. It's because of your goodness and your power and your love that we come to you and ask that you would open this to us. We need light to illumine the darkness. We need life in our hearts. We need repentance and faith. We need you to move. Yet again, please speak that we might listen. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a bit more complex of a sermon because it's a bit more complex of a passage, but I would begin with a question. Don't answer, right? Because you're going to want to. What's the first thing that pops in your brain when I say, knock, knock? Ah, everybody almost said it, didn't they? Or when you say, dear Mr. Mason. Or you say, once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away. Or do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I was going to use a limerick, but I couldn't find any good ones that were clean and safe to use in the pulpit. They're pretty much all vile, but you get the point, right? When you ask what's the first thing that pops into your brain, when I say those phrases, you're actually automatically making a genre assessment. You can immediately tell me what the context of that language is, what's attached to it, right? Knock, knock. Who's there? You automatically know with those, that one word repeated twice, you know it's a joke, most likely bad joke, but one that you will most likely enjoy, despite it being so silly. Dear Mr. Mason, you automatically say, well, it's a letter. Dear Mr. Okay, it's probably a formal letter of some kind. Okay, that's cool. Right? If it said, dearest lovey-dovey, you would know it's a different type of letter, but you would still know it's a letter. Once upon a time in a kingdom far, far, you know, it's a fairy tale. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the... What, what is that? Well, it's a vow, and it? it's an oath of the most serious kind that we take in our country. You automatically know the genre of those words, even though the words aren't really telling it to you, are they? 
There's a context that we automatically understand so that we get the genre of what's taking place. We know it. It's a joke. It's a vow. It's a formal letter. It's a limerick. It's a whatever. We get it, and we get it quickly. Now, some of those are very, very basic, and anybody can understand them. Even the people who are first learning English get some of those things really quickly. But it's interesting, some of those genre assessments are ones that are a little bit more difficult to pick up. Right? When you're first learning a language, any person who learns a second or third or fourth or whatever language has to learn what some of those key identifiers are. Right? And English is notoriously difficult for this. Because you think about it. I mean, if you're first learning English and a person walks up to you and says, knock, knock. You're crazy. Right? There's no context for that. We don't understand what the genre is because you don't have kind of the bigger significance. Well, to pick up why am I starting this is because Genesis is going to start screaming at us from the very beginning what the genre is of the text. Now, it's in the Hebrew, and because we're not Hebrew speakers except for one guy in the back, uh, most of us don't understand how it's yelling, knock, knock at us. It's not saying knock, knock, thankfully. It's not a cheesy, terrible joke. It's doing this thing called the imperfect plus vav consecutive, which is a fancy way of saying, and then she said, and then I said, and then he went, and oh, I couldn't believe. You see what I just did? I took the word and and past tense verbs and coupled them together. And when that happens, what do you automatically know is I'm doing? I mean, just those words. And then she said, and then I said, and then he went. What am I doing? I'm telling you a story. And I'm telling you a real story. I'm telling you a true story. You automatically know just by those little kind of key identifiers, I'm telling you a real and true story. Now, you would have to question the truthfulness of that because you'd have to question my character, but you would at least pretend enough, right? That happens in Genesis from the very beginning. If you notice actually in the ESV how many times it starts with, and God said, and God did, and it was, and God did, and it was, and this is to remind you God is telling us a very real and very true and very accurate historical explanation of what took place. Meaning, as we come to Genesis 1, we're not coming to a fairy tale. We're not coming to a knock-knock joke, thankfully. We're not coming to a limerick. We're not coming to poetry. We're not coming to some fanciful, crazy thing. We're not coming to a scientific text. We're coming to God narrating what happened in the beginning of time. <clears throat> a historical, true narrative. All right, well, okay, that's cool. We've got the genre down. What do we do with that? Well, okay, first is we have to kind of go back and review our sermon last week. We really just dealt with verse 1. And there's a reason being is because that is the thesis statement of the chapter, the two chapters, the entire book, the whole Bible is the thesis statement of it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So prior to time, prior to space, prior to energy, prior to matter, prior to any of those things that we always have to have existing, that we always have to know, that we see our entire existence through, prior to those existing, God did, and he made. And he made everything. Heavens and earth, visible and invisible, like we just had in Colossians. Everything. He made everything. 
That's the thesis statement. Verse 2 through the end of the chapter really explain that thesis statement to us so we can understand what it looks like, right? You introduce the topic and then you explain the topic. Now I have to kind of give a, a little bit of a disclaimer here because so many of us have studied Genesis from so many different pastors and many times we've had very different perspectives of it presented and some of them are very, very incorrect. One of which I was taught as a child was that there's a gigantic gap between verse 1 and verse 2. That verse 1 happens, and then God waited a bajillion years between verse 1 and verse 2, and then began to actually do something. So in verse 1, he kind of created everything, and it's all a mess. And then verse 2, he begins to start. And that view is actually started by a guy named Thomas Chalmers, which the PCA's Poverty Relief Center, called the Chalmers Center, is named after. Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century pastor worth naming a kid after. All of PCA diaconal work is really built off of Thomas Chalmers' understanding of poverty relief. It was brilliant. He mentored a guy named Robert Marie McShane, if you recognize that name. Great guy. But his view of Genesis 1 was rotten. The exegesis was rotten. And what he said was there's this huge gap between verse 1 and verse 2 to account for the old age of the earth. And he was shameless in saying it accounted for the old age of the earth and it accounted for the fall of Satan. is it doesn't fit because he misunderstood something and that verse 1 is a header verse 1 is your thesis statement verse 1 is your introduction to the text now why can you not have a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 because if you can't have a gap in the timeline between the thesis statement and the first action you can have a gap between two actions, but first one isn't an action, it's an introduction, it's the thesis statement, it's the explanation getting to the text. Verse 2 is when the action starts. There can't be a gap before the action starts, it doesn't make any sense. Pastor Chalmers, though, being unbearably brilliant on most things, missed that one. In fact, actually, it's so much so that in the last 50 years, this view has kind of pretty much gone by the wayside and is not taught frequently anymore. Because it's a mess. I learned it when I was a kid in the PCA. Doesn't fit. Doesn't work. So we answer just briefly the question of angels. I know people are going to have it. Where did the angels come from? Answer, we don't know which day they were created on, but we know they were created. Some people hold day one because it says the angels were present in the foundations of the deep. Some people hold day two because of their connection with light. Some people hold day four because of their connection with the stars. Long answer, short answer, we don't actually know. The Bible doesn't teach us. We just know that they were created at some point. And that's all we need to know. And God, frankly, isn't telling their story to us. He's telling our story to us. He's telling his story to us. So, all right, now that we've got this kind of background for historical narrative, background that verse 1 introduces the theme, and verse 2 immediately jumps into the action. What's the action that we want to jump into? Well, we're going to kind of review the story, but I want you to see kind of three themes as they come out, as we kind of go piece by piece. This first theme, and this is probably one that you may not expect, is that this entire story, this true, real, historical, literal, actual story, highlights the unique and special position of humans. And you're like, wait, we're in Genesis 1, starting verse 2. You're talking about humans. They don't even exist yet. They're not going to exist till the end of this chapter. Exactly. That's the whole point you're going to see. 
So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. There's our thesis statement introduced. Verse 2, we begin, go further. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And you begin to see immediately that when this is telling the story, this is not telling the story of the universe. This is not telling the story of the furthest reaches of everywhere else. This is not telling the story of Mars. This is not telling the story of Pluto. Poor Pluto. Got demoted. This is telling the story of Earth. And so it zooms in, focuses in, narrows the scope to Earth. And what's taking place on Earth as this creation is taking place is that God has made this thing of mass and matter. Some sort of kind of, um, I think Dr. Morris can, explains it as like a mixture of mud and electricity. Some just amazing creative mass. Because again, we're not, we don't think, tend to think scientifically. We just assume that energy exists. No, energy is created as part of this. We tend to assume matter exists. No, it, it, matter is created as part of this. And it's described as water. You think about it, energy exists in wave form. It fits. This whole thing is just this kind of conglomeration of waves and the Holy Spirit is brooding over it like a mother hen sitting on an egg, superintending, shepherding, making sure that this takes place perfectly. Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters and in the midst of this, God says, let there be light. Again, we kind of forget our science. And so we just think, oh, well, cool, he spoke light into existence. That's neat. Our entire scientific understanding today is built around our understanding of light. Light is the standard that everything else is kind of in many ways built off of. The speed of light, you know, energy equals mass times the constant squared, which is the speed of light. Everything is built off of our understanding of light. And it's very interesting that the very beginning, God is going and creating not just like these lights, not just like some sort of light that's shining on the sun. We're talking the very existence of light itself. Photons. He speaks, and they are. He doesn't reshape them from something else. He doesn't take some other kind of cool form of energy and remake it and reshape it to form light. He speaks. And light is. And God saw that the light was good. That's a pretty cool statement. And then this really neat, (laughs) amazing thing happens. He calls the light day and the darkness night. So we have some sort of light source external to the earth. And at this point, we figured out that the earth is already in some form a sphere and it's in some sort of way spinning because we have day and night already established. Now, we don't know what that light source is. Sun doesn't exist yet. Can't be the sun. Could be God Himself. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But there's a light source, and the earth is spinning, and we get day and we get night. You know, it's interesting on day one, it goes ahead and explains for us what a day is. What is the day? There was evening and there was morning the first day. And it goes and tells us from the very beginning how long the day was. It's one trip. It's one rotation. It's the earth spinning. The same we have today, the same we've had for the last 6,000 years. It's a day. But light created day and night labeled. It's good. Evening, morning, the first day is over. 
But in the midst of this, you have light on one side and the earth rotating and the earth is uninhabitable. It is unlivable. It is an unattainable place for people to live. It is worse than Mars. It is undoable. So God continues. And let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And the ex- God made the expanse to separate the waters that were under the expanse from the waters. And we all, I'm lost. I'm already confused. What happens? Well, here he basically creates the infrastructure of earth. He takes this mass of the waters and energy that's all part of earth and all of the dirt and matter that's all combined and he sucks water out of it to create an atmosphere. And he sucks water out of it to create seas along the top that aren't seas because there's no land yet. It's just a whole mass of water. And then you have the crust of the earth and then you have a mass of water inside, the fountains of the deep. And it's uninhabitable. I mean, unless you have an amazing boat that you could live in constantly with no need to replicate food of any kind. It's uninhabitable. And so we have atmosphere. We have water covering the earth. We have the infrastructure of the planet getting to be completed. And there's morning and evening the second day. And the third day begins... And God says, it's time to make land. We have the beautiful picture in the Psalms of the the mountains being thrown up in the middle of the sea and the valleys dropping so the waters kind of all converge there. And it says, God made the land and he called the dry land earth. Now this to me is unbearably intriguing that he's in day three of creation. And where is creation entirely reserved in? Earth. I mean, we we haven't even talked about the sun because the sun doesn't exist yet. The only thing that we actually know about creation is inside the atmosphere and a light source, which could be God. We don't know. We actually don't know if anything else exists at this point. I don't think anything does. I think it's literally just the earth. That's it. And so he makes land, calls the mountains out of the sea, as we sang in the psalm earlier so beautifully, gathers the waters together, into the the oceans, into the lakes, and God saw that it was good, and immediately the infrastructure, really the infrastructure of earth is completed. At this point, earth is a habitable place for something. And so what does he do immediately? He speaks the plants into existence. And this is an important point to note here, is that he speaks them into existence, full-blown, full-grown, and ready to go. God said, let the earth sprout, vegetate, let the earth vegetate vegetation. What's that vegetation? What are those plants? Well, they're plants yielding seed. They're mature plants ready to go. And they're going to yield seed after their own kind. Meaning, orange tree's not going to drop a seed, and that orange seed's going to turn into an apple tree. Orange trees make orange trees, or citrus trees make citrus trees, apple trees make apple trees, all the same. And the vegetation, vegetation takes over the planet at his spoken word. You see, there's an important point to be seen here is that as this story is being told, is that this story is highlighting the unique position of humanity. I mean, just out of all the parts of creation that are going to be here by the end of it, a billion, billion stars. 
Yes, that number is correct right now. A billion, billion stars. Millions of planets, things that we haven't even discovered yet on the big scale. All of the amazing things that take place on the small scale. Right on the, the atomic level with the strong force and the weak force inside the atom and electrons getting passed back and forth and all of the crazy things that take place there. And out of all of the parts of creation, God is choosing to focus in on Earth where people live. This is God's story, but it's the story of Earth. It's the story of people. And it would be appropriate then that as we look at this to value His creation to show value and appreciation for the things that he has made. He made it, and he made it amazing. But to see it in proper balance. This creation is absolutely amazing, but you know what? It's not amazing as the people that God put in it. There's a reason why he didn't begin Genesis with the story of all the galaxies, with the story of the universe, or the story of the first hydrogen atom. It's the story of God making people because people are important to him. You may have missed the news this week. Uh, I know many of us don't really follow international news. Belgium passed the first law in the West um, that's going to change the world. Belgium has always been what they call progressive, what I call hopelessly lost. They have the lowest age of consent amongst most of the countries in the West, and this week they passed uh, the most atrocious law I've ever heard. Uh, they have made it legal now to euthanize children. Yeah. Children now in Belgium, according to law, can request to be euthanized if they're terminally ill, if they request multiple times, if they're in severe pain and they're 12 years old. 12 years old. They passed the law 2 to 1, 88 for, 44 against, and I think 9 abstentions. And when they voted, a man stood up in the back and said, you're all murderers, and then ran before they could arrest him. Because he's right. He's absolutely right. And we're all like, oh, I'm so opposed to that. It's, you can do this in Oregon. It's just we don't apply it to the young yet. And you can do this in most states called abortion. We've lost the understanding that people are special. Christian people, non-Christian people, people are special. My preaching professor at RTS used to say, whenever anybody comes for a funeral, you say yes. Even if you're the only one there. Because people are special. And even in death, they're special. Like We've lost that idea. This whole story, God's story, is zooming in on one tiny planet in the middle of nowhere in the universe to tell the story of us because it's going to be the story of Jesus. And we've lost that. Second is that it highlights the power of God. He speaks the plants into existence. It's morning, evening, morning. It's the third day. And so verse 14, we pick up. This is my favorite day of all except for the last. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. So we already have the light source. Don't know what it is. It hasn't told us could be God, could not be, we don't know. 
But now we're going to say, let there be fixed lights. So let's put sun and moon. Let's put bodies of lights in the sky. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. So let's have the sun and let's have the moon. And we'll be able to use those to track the signs and the seasons, right? So we'll have an idea of, and you think about, I mean, sailors have sailed by the stars for years. They've been a sign, which way's north, which way's not. You can track the cycle of the moon to give you a sense of chronology, to give you a sense of time, to give you a sense of order and orientation in your world. The sun goes down, the sun comes up. That's a day! We have a sense of understanding in our world. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the sun, soul, lesser light to rule the night, Luna, the moon. Oh, and by the way, the stars. I love that. It's my favorite in the entire thing. And the stars. Literally is what it says in the ESV. And the stars. <laughs> he spoke a billion, billion stars into existence with background light, radiation, everything. Boom! And it gets three words in the ESV. I mean, what type of power are we talking about? That this amazing action, it gets three words. Oh, by the way, and the stars. In case you missed it. We can't even understand how big our galaxy is because it's too big for us, our brains to get wrapped around. Much less the fact that there are millions and millions of galaxies all throughout our universe. We, we don't even understand how big this is. And God just like, oh, by the way, that happened too. It's huge. The different nebula, the comets, meteoroids, meteorites, all of the different parts of creation. Oh, by the way, they're there too. Morning and e evening and morning, fourth day, and then the waters and the skies. Let's populate them. Let's speak into existence the birds of the air and the creatures of the waters. And I love that, again, it just kind of mentions there, right? God created 21, the great sea creatures. He just mentions in passing the great sea creatures. I know at least one of the resources that I've uh, mentioned to you already believe that the great sea creatures are actually, in some cases, like fire-breathing dragon type of like great sea creatures, like things that are lost back from the era of the dinosaurs, you know, the Leviathan, all kinds of things. Just amazing creatures that we just don't understand anymore. It's why when you're going to get a couple chapters in advance and it's talking about the mighty men who lived prior to the flood, and you're thinking, you lived with the dinosaurs, you better be a mighty man. Otherwise, you're in a world of hurt. His power, just unbelievable to speak the great sea creatures into existence and to speak these birds into existence. I mean, birds don't even have stomachs. Their bones are hollow so they can fly. Who would have thought of that? Just speaks it and it is. God's power is astonishing. Now, I'm going to give you a comparison as we think about this of my two, two of my favorite books. One is my favorite movie of all time, uh, but two of my favorite books, right? My favorite movie of all time, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. I've read the book. It's awesome. The movie is fantastic. I absolutely love it. Douglas Adams was a staunch atheist. He's not anymore. He died in 2001, but he was an atheist when he died. In fact, actually, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, Dawkins writes about God being a delusion entirely, is dedicated to Douglas Adams. So not a great guy, right? He was a postmodernist. 
He's an, kind of a nihilist. Nothing really exists for him. And his humor really comes at just poking fun of the just uh, boringness, the mundaneness, and the meaninglessness of life. You know, one of his famous illustrations is the puddle that suddenly becomes sentient and is amazed at how well the dirt fits the puddle. It's very, very funny in my opinion, but very, very lost. And then The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. Many of you know the Chronicles of Narnia, but most of you don't know The Magician's Nephew because it's the ugly stepchild of the series. It's actually chronologically the first one. In my opinion, it's the best one. But both of these stories are fantastic because they explain the creation narrative of Earth. And you see one beautifully from an atheist perspective, and you see one beautifully from an evangelicalish perspective. All right, Douglas Adams in his book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy does what I think most people attempt to do with Genesis 1 and 2. He reduces creation to a gigantic cosmic factory. And if you watch the movie, the lead character um, gets kind of pulled into this factory and takes this little kind of little train ride as they're building the planets. They're actually building Earth, and you get to see them filling the, for, the fjords of Norway with the waters, and you see them painting the flowers, and you see this gigantic factory building the planet. And they've reduced, Douglas Adams has reduced creation to something that is manageable to me. And it's like building a car, only bigger. A little bit more complex, but something that people can do. Reduced this whole text, this magnificent story, to something that is scientific and reproducible. Whereas C.S. Lewis and the magician's nephew takes the lead characters with Aslan, who is you know, his representation of God, and it tells the story of the formation of Narnia. And they arrive at this place that's dark and black, and it feels kind of solid under their feet. And the first thing they hear is the lion Aslan singing. And he sings the world into existence. And they watch as he sings the sunrise. And he sings the trees into existence. And he sings the birds into existence. And it's this magnificently beautiful, kind of totally fictitious rendering of Genesis 1 and 2. And you see these great contrasts because the evangelical mind, the biblical mind, the understanding of the scriptures takes creation totally outside the realm of human capability. The atheist, the pagan, and the scientist want to reduce it, the non-Christian scientists want to reduce it to a replicatable human activity. Something manageable, something that we can keep within our own little box of understanding. Right? Bill Nye made this point in his debate a couple weeks ago with Ken Ham as he was constantly debating and saying, look, all of the variations in this world come from the light of the sun. It's a replicatable scientific understanding that we can wrap our brains around. And, and Ken Ham is kind of like, man, there's a book that tells you about this and only God can do it. Stop trying to put him in your pocket and make him this manageable little activity. God did this. It's amazing. <coughs> Too often we find ourselves trying to do this with the text and begin to answer questions that it's not designed to answer. What is the light prior to the creation of the sun? I don't know. I can't tell you. Probably from the character of God, the glory cloud of God, but that's a guess. How did the plants do so awesomely without a sun? 
Well, obviously the light that existed previous to the sun was good enough for the plants to grow, but I don't know what it was. We can take this text and try to cram it through our scientific understanding, through our science and through our perspectives and through all of the resources that we have, and we will just neuter the text because it's not designed for that. It's designed to show the special position of people. It's designed to show God's power, and it's designed to show God's beauty. Lastly, very quickly, day six. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was. We get to day six, and he creates kittens and puppies and snakes, which would have been awesome at the time, and dinosaurs and cows and just beauty. I mean, beauty. Can you imagine that? I mean, being Adam in the garden and to think that, like, you get to hang out with a T Rex. And the, like the baby kittens all at the same time. Just, how fun would that have been? I mean, it would have been awesome, right? This tremendous sense of beauty that God has wired into his creation because it shows who he is. It's for that reason that we all need to be scientists in some form or fashion. I'm not saying everybody needs to study astronomy in their spare time, and not everybody needs to be able to read biology books and understand uh, you know, the different theories of the size of the universe, and certainly not everybody needs to understand string theory, but we all need to be scientists in some fashion. Because this was made with us being the pinnacle. This was made so that the human story would be told as God's glory is screamed throughout creation. It would make sense for us to learn about it. To learn about how the chair that you're sitting on is like 98% empty space. The matter is just this tiny little thing. Yet you don't fall through it. That's amazing how that works. We all need to be scientists in one form or another. And lastly, We frequently talk about the call for the church to be different and to not compromise with the world. In the book of Acts, we frequently and at length talked about persecution of the church. We've talked at length in Sunday school and in worship about the different manners in which the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to undo us. Well, guess what? Here we go. In our current culture, the society and time in which we live, this is it. This is it. You want to be different, not compromise with the world? Hold Genesis 1 and 2. Don't hold evolution. It's bad science anyway. Evolution is terrible science. But hold Genesis 1 and 2. You want to be different? There you go. You want to see persecution. (laughs) Um, This guy right here. Jason Lyle, I believe he did his PhD at the University of Colorado. He actually uh, discovered a thing in astronomy that had never been discovered before and had the most promising career ahead of him because he was the best, the up-and-coming prodigy. He was the LeBron James. He was going to be the next great guy. And then he explained that he held Genesis 1 and 2, and he's a pariah. Can't get a job anywhere because nobody hires that guy. Persecuted for his stance on 1 and 2. And this doctrine of creation is under attack. And then lastly is make one application point that does not fit everybody in here, but it's going to fit some more than others. Our children. Young parents, grandparents, loved ones, friends, family, Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, whatever you want to talk about. This is unbearably important for our children. Because this is no longer being taught at all. 
And if they're going to get it, they have to get it here and they have to get it at home. Why did I stand up and give you five minutes of resources? Guess what? Because you need them. You need them. We need to be teaching our children even now. You know what? Evolution is bad science. It's only a matter of time until it falls apart because it's terrible science. Old Earth, in my opinion, is terrible science. It's only a matter of time. Modern genetics, it's not excellent science. It's all presupposing an atheistic position. But we need to be equipped so that our children are prepared, so that we are prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have and not caught flat-footed as our world wants us to do. Because why? As we do all of this, as we understand this text, as we understand God's glory, His beauty, His power, His might, guess what happens is all follows. A sense of awe. Like I said, I'm a science nerd by hobby. And I've heard a lot of people talk about creation. I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, the different, from different perspectives, atheists, non-atheists. I've heard everybody talk about it. I can tell you right now, the person who is in the most sense of awe of God is this guy. As he began to explain what God did and how that provokes wonder. Another word for that is worship. Because what's our end goal here? It's not just to hear the story of people, not just to hear the story of God, but to provoke worship, which will be our goal. Father, we wish to worship you more. We wish to worship you well. May you be pleased to stir up those affections in us even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.